Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. This morning we declared a national emergency for only the third time in our history. Back-to-back extreme weather disasters trigger national state of emergency in New Zealand. There's many, many ways in which the ice can change, and we're seeing all of them. New studies find global warming is melting Antarctica's ice. Plus, this train apparently was not considered a high hazardous material train. Uh, This is absurd. Growing concerns about safety for residents near Ohio chemical train derailment. All of those concerns and more straight ahead from Brandblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So where's the EPA? If they say my plastic straw is destroying this country, then they must be all over a cancer-causing gas bomb in the Ohio River Valley, right? Really what we have to do is we have to make sure that our rails are safe. Uh, wait a minute. Why is Fox News and Marjorie Taylor Greene suddenly concerned about the EPA and toxic train spills? We'll discuss. And no, they don't say your plastic straw is destroying this country. This is your Green News Report. Desi Doyen, this is very, very strange. It's like someone flipped a switch. Everybody over on Fox News is suddenly concerned about this train derailment and disaster in Ohio. Why is that? Well, I think it's following a familiar pattern. Right-wing media and Republican politicians are attempting to exploit a disaster for political gain, claiming that rural white conservatives are basically being persecuted by the government's response to the (laughs) Ohio train derailment. Ah, It's those poor white people who are getting it again. I see why Fox News all of a sudden gives a damn. They're usually not concerned about the EPA. And by the way, it was Trump who rolled back Obama's safety regulations on trains that might have prevented this disaster. Exactly. So to update, concerns are growing about safety for residents returning to their homes in the aftermath of that fiery, toxic chemical train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, nearly two weeks ago. Ohio officials have told residents to use bottled water until testing confirms that their local water supply is safe. In a press conference, Republican Ohio Governor Mike DeWine called it absurd that the train cars were marked non hazardous despite their toxic cargo, DeWine called on Congress to tighten regulations for trains carrying hazardous substances, seemingly unaware that the Trump administration rolled back multiple train safety rules at the railroad industry's request, including requirements for safer braking systems. Unaware or would just like to not notice. As of airtime, DeWine has not requested a formal disaster declaration from President Biden to release more federal resources, contradicting baseless right-wing media claims of a lackluster federal response. In New Zealand, just weeks after record rainfall triggered deadly flooding in Auckland, a massive cyclone, Gabrielle, this week caused widespread destruction across the North Island, triggering floods and landslides, collapsing buildings and destroying transportation, power and communications infrastructure. New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins declared a national emergency for only the third time in the country's history. New Zealand's Climate Minister James Shaw blasted the New Zealand Parliament for its delays. I don't think I've ever felt as sad or as angry about the lost decades that we spent bickering and arguing about whether climate change was real or not, 
whether it was caused by humans or not, whether it was bad or not, whether we should do something about it uh, or not, because it is clearly uh, here now. Uh, and if we do not act, it will get worse. New Zealand is just having a terrible, terrible time with this. Two major disasters in just the last few weeks. Yes, it's very difficult to recover from that. At the South Pole, the amount of floating sea ice encircling Antarctica has reached the lowest level ever recorded for the second year in a row since the satellite era began in 1979. That's according to the National Snow and Ice Data Center. In a different study, scientists trying to understand how quickly ice in Antarctica is melting say they encountered, quote, an eerily warm ocean and found that the warming ocean and marine heat waves are eroding coastal ice shelves and carving up the underside of the important Thwaites Glacier, with major implications for rising sea levels. Yeah, like enough ice, if it melts, it'll raise the sea levels by about two feet around the world. Finally, a bit of good news. Your next washing machine and refrigerator will be much cheaper to operate in a few years thanks to new energy efficiency rules proposed by the U.S. Department of Energy, the first efficiency upgrade to major appliances in more than 10 years. Once finalized, the agency says the new efficiency rules will reduce carbon emissions and collectively save Americans about $3.5 billion a year on energy and water bills. Oh, let the complaining begin on Fox News of how they're coming to take away their washing machines or something. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. You're a clean machine. You sparkle in the sun. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. Three years ago, we launched the movement bringing together Christians across many lines of differences to speak together against the dangers of Christian nationalism to our faith and our country. A powerful prophetic voice against the dangerous surge in Christian nationalist rhetoric which undermines both religion and democracy in this country, is the initiative Christians Against Christian Nationalism. On this week's show, I'll talk with Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, which organized the movement. She'll be joined by Dr. Robert P. Jones, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, which just issued an alarming survey titled A Christian Nation? Understanding the threat of Christian nationalism to American democracy and culture. Cities across the nation are going to church for Ash Wednesday, and some churches are adding glitter to those ashes to show support for members of the LGBTQ community. It's a solemn day on the calendar of many Christian traditions. Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the pre-Easter season of Lent. We'll find out why some faith activists created an alternative observance, Glitter Ash Wednesday from the Reverend Marion Edmonds Allen and the Reverend Liz Edmond. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with 
the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Dr. Robert P. Jones is founding CEO at the nonpartisan Public Religion Research Institute, which has just published the report, A Christian Nation, Understanding the Threat of Christian Nationalism to American Democracy and Culture. The finding of this report really underscores the urgency of the work of Christians Against Christian Nationalism. Amanda Tyler and Robbie Jones are both with us this week. Welcome to State of Belief Radio. Oh, thanks so much for having us. Yes, great to be here. Robbie, the timing couldn't be better. Your poll was bracing and informative and comprehensive. And I just, I want to know personally, when you looked at the data, what stood out to you as someone who has been thinking about this for a long time, as a person who is very invested in the church in your own way? What do you see in this poll that really strikes you? Well, you know, first of all, um, I, I'd love to say that the timing uh, wasn't necessary, uh, right? Um, but, you know, given uh, January 6th and the events that we've seen unfold really over the last, you know, five or six years, um, this threat of white Christian nationalism, and I should say, you know, and I see this as a threat, you know, both to our democracy and to our churches, right? Um, it's both, um, and, and American culture more broadly uh, speaking. Um, we really wanted to try to find a way to measure it. I mean, there's been a lot of ink spilled. We've seen a lot of examples on the ground, a lot of ink spilled about um, what it is. Um, but and we've had some measures, um, some work, uh, for example, of Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead have been great at kind of giving us some uh, measures. But we wanted to get an updated measure of just how big this threat was. And, you know, to put it in a nutshell, I think the thing that stood out to me is, you know, some things that were hopeful, but some things that were also quite arresting. And I think the hopeful part is that, you know, we basically used five questions to measure uh, people's sympathies toward Christian nationalism. And we could talk about the details of that later. But uh, when it came down to it, we found out that basically by a margin of two to one, uh, most Americans actually reject this worldview, right? Um, that the, things like the U.S. laws should be uh, based on Christian values, the U.S. should declare itself a Christian nation, like those kinds of ideas, they're rejected by, you know, by, uh, by two-thirds of the country. However, on the other hand, the arresting part was that this set of ideas has now um, become ensconced uh, and, is, and is reflected by a majority of one of our two political parties, the Republican Party, uh, 54% are in one of these top two categories who are either uh, straight up adherents of this worldview or at least sympathetic uh, to this worldview. And among uh, really the group that I grew up in, uh, white evangelicals, uh, it's, it's captured nearly two thirds uh, of yeah. that group. So yeah. I, that's the basic lay of the land. Yeah, I think there is good news is that this is not a popular idea, but the bad news is, is that with a remarkable percentage of our population and especially within some of our churches, this is, idea is extremely popular and almost operative. And I, I think that that was really, really 
extraordinary and and bracing. Uh, Amanda, you're really looking at this closely, especially from the lens of the Christian perspective on Christian nationalism. And I, you must have looked at this poll. And what were some of the things that stood out to you about it that that felt like, oh, okay, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And in fact, I was able to be present for the uh, public release of the poll at the Brookings Institution um, recently uh, on February 8th for and to hear uh, Robbie's presentation, which was really so well done and fascinating to distill these findings in a way that uh, really made a lot of sense, um, or at least helped us make sense of what's going on. And I would say, in addition to what Robbie already pointed to, you know, that this is, yes, a minority view, but one that is becoming even more deeply entrenched. Um, I think what stood out to me on that point was also the link to violence, how, Mm. how willing some of these adherents to Christian nationalism are to take up arms um, in order to make the country the Christian nation that, that they want it to that, be. That stood out to me too. Seven times more willing to take to 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 um, take up arms and and be violent. violent. Uh, yeah. I, I I found that statistic as well, Amanda. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I no. I want to underscore what you were saying. That that seemed very threatening to me. Yeah. I mean, I think the three of us are not people who are given to being alarmed, but we are alarmed, I think, by by this sense of, of how increasingly violent um, this longstanding ideology is becoming. Um, yeah. But but two other particular parts that stood out to me and actually caused me to ask a question about it during the public event. Um, one was uh, the link of Christian nationalism to anti-Black racism. And and this is a point um, both that we at Christians Against Christian Nationalism have continually made, and of course, Robbie has made in his public scholarship on this point as well, that you can't understand Christian nationalism apart from white supremacy. Um, But the findings here caused me to look at this issue in a little bit of a different way because of the controls that they were able to put on both Christian nationalism adherence, but also on racial and ethnic identity and how those things correlated when it came to asking questions about anti-Black racism. And I know Robbie could talk to the specifics of this, but the takeaway for me was how much are these opinions uh, these uh, that reflect anti-Black racism, how much are they really just correlated to white supremacy standalone and how much is it correlated to Christian nationalism or some combination of the two. Mm. Uh, At Christians Against Christian Nationalism, we have discussed this saying Christian nationalism often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation so that, you know, people who hold white supremacist views will cloak them in Christian nationalist language in order to be more socially acceptable. Um, because it is more socially acceptable to say that you're a Christian or say that the country is a Christian country or say that the country should reflect Christian values, though right. that kind of language is more socially yeah. acceptable the more explicitly I, racist. I mean, I think statement. part of part of the part of the Christian nationalist like kind of um, mo is like we are saying who belongs. 
and who truly belongs. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those, you know, that's that has a that has a, a religious element and a racial element about who's truly American. Like when we go to the root of it, who's really American? And so that that is that is you, you mentioned one other that you wanted to yeah. mention. And the other one is right on point to the work that we're trying to do at Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And that is this, I think, a little bit shocking finding to me. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be so shocked, um, but looking at church attendance and mm. and the the results of this are the more that you go to church, the more likely you are to hold Christian nationalist views. And and for me, that begs the question: Is what are we doing in our churches? Are are we teaching Christianity or are we teaching Christian nationalism? And Look, I know that that's not a hermetically sealed division between those two things, right? These are different, right? These are different things. I think Christianity is a religion. Christian nationalism is an ideology. Um, But that sometimes Christian nationalism has so infected our um, theology and our worship practice that can be difficult to tell the difference between the two. And I I think some of these um, findings show that. Well, and and that was one of the things that really dispelled one of the one of the talking points that many of us wanted to believe, frankly, that you know these these weren't Christians going to church, that these were somehow apart, you know, maybe just QAnon or something like that. But actually, these are actually churchgoers. I think one of the key findings of, of the survey was to really connect this to institutions, right? And not just to attitudes that float around in some, you know, disembodied way, but that are actually connected on the ground uh, through sermons, through Sunday school, through churches here. Um, and we had, you know, I had a hint of this from uh, from my book, White Too Long, where uh, I discovered there and I was measuring white Christian attitudes and racist attitudes. And, and what I found there was uh, that... Um, uh, there was a positive correlation between white Christian identity and holding more racist attitudes, and that that actually went up, particularly among for white evangelicals, uh, for high church attenders. Like that, that it actually going to church actually made them more racist um, in yeah. their views. So we set it up to measure the same thing here, um, and it's exactly what we found out. So I'll give it to you kind of two ways that if we look at those and the four categories we had for Christian nationalism were adherents. Those were people who like agreed with almost every question we asked about um, uh, Christian nationalism, then sympathizers who mostly agreed, but maybe not as strongly as the adherents. And then on the other side, we had two categories, Christian nationalism skeptics. These were mostly disagreed, but might, you know, uh, still didn't disagree as strongly as the last category. And those were Christian nationalism rejectors, which disagreed with every statement uh, that we asked about. Uh, Christian nationalism, and we uh, look at that. The it, it is a is a very positive and, and in fact linear relationship between going to church and moving up the scale. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you look at, for example, those who attend uh, once a week or more, so the the most frequent church attenders, um, half of that group is in either the Christian nationalism adherent or sympathizer category. Twenty one percent of them are adherents. Another twenty nine percent of of those high church attenders are sympathizers. If you flip it around the other way uh, and you look at it and you um, look at religious uh, uh, Christian nationalism adherents, they're six times as likely as Christian nationalism rejectors to attend church weekly. There was one question about like Christian national adherents thought that Christians were bigger supporters of Israel than Jews. And I thought like, wow. Way to go, Christian. You know, like way to take over something like Jewish engagement with Israel, which is in serious 
you know, there's a lot of engagement right now, especially with what's going on with the government in Israel and the American Jewish com- community. But to claim that they somehow are bigger supporters, I mean, this is I, I found that, you know, just from my own perspective, just absurd and objectionable and but indicative of something. Let, let me let me. You know, one of the things that I, I talked to Catherine Stewart, who was on the show a little bit ago, and about um, the the amount of um, Hispanic Americans who also the the kind of overlap there, and it's not just with you know, there's like an interesting racial adoption of Christian nationalism that seem that you got into in a nuanced way in your report, Robbie. Can you say a little bit more about that, like how it the the kind of underlying white supremacy is spilling over even into uh, non-white populations. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's worth noting that this is where I think um, it's complex because on the one hand, I think the the real threat that we are facing is this amalgamation of white supremacy and Christian nationalism. Like that's absolutely right. But we also find that uh, there are some non-white adherents of Christian nationalism, right? And then the survey turns this up. Now they are mostly white, overwhelmingly white, but there's a non-negligible um, minority who are not white. And I think particularly with um, Latino Americans, what we see is that the bridge is evangelical Christianity, right? Evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic Christianity. And then what's happened is that um, there is this evangelical alliance, right? That happens often actually in uh, you know Latin American countries on the ground, and then uh, also uh, has a connection here. And that what happens is with that evangelical Christianity, what comes along for the ride with that theology is a white supremacist worldview and a Christian supremacist idea of what being American means, right? So it all kind of comes along together as a package. And we see that being picked up here among, you know, some Christian nationalism adherents of color um, where you actually see it. Now, there are differences on on particularly around anti-immigrant views, anti-black racism and anti-Muslim views. You do see white, uh, Christian nationalism here, it's having far stronger connections to those other ideologies than uh, adherents of color. But but on anti-Semitism, um, actually, we see Christian nationalism adherents of color rivaling and some places yeah. exceeding uh, yeah. the anti-Semitic attitudes. I, I'm curious about, um, you asked about gender, but you're not about LGBTQ. Is that just because it's just so obvious that they'll be anti-LGBTQ? We don't even need to ask that question, but I, I didn't see that in the report. I, I did see some very strong sort of gender findings around like, you know, man is the head of the house and all kinds of different things there. But I don't think you asked any questions about LGBTQ, which just is so much in the news, especially if we look at Florida and other places like that. Yeah. You know, we didn't have it specifically in this survey. It's pretty easy to interpolate um, to other surveys though. I mean, you know, the, again, the core of this group are white evangelical Protestants. And we know that they are, for example, the only group, uh, I don't say this like really slowly, the only religious major religious group, in which a majority opposes marriage equality, uh, for example, right? Like every other religious group is now on the other side of that question. It's white evangelicals really holding out a majority opposition uh, to marriage equality who tend to be very negative on pretty much anything related to transgender Americans. So we know that these things correlate. Uh, What we wanted to ask is kind of like a a different kind of question that was really about patriarchal uh, patriarchy and, and kind of hierarchical gender roles there's been less asked about that actually, which was one of the reasons why we wanted to go there in this survey. And so you're right, like things like 
in a truly Christian family, the husband is the head of the household, his wife submits to his leadership, society as a whole has become too soft and feminine. Uh, these things like oh my gosh. Christian, Christian nationalists, I mean, Christian nationalists are like twice as likely as Americans, right, to agree uh, yeah. with these kinds of statements. And that that statement, right, that you're cringing about um, was one of the highest predictors of vote for Trump in 2016. Too feminine. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, that macho man, Trump. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, Amanda, what I love about what you're doing with Christians Against Christian Nationals, which is, by the way, part of your broader, amazing work to protect religious freedom in the country from, you know, it's very dear to my heart. What do you feel like is like the place to start here? And for our listeners also, like in addition to to finding out more about Christians Against Christian Nationalism, what can... What should we be doing? Like, what is the what's the what's the the action item that we need to to embrace? Yeah, well, one thing which we're doing right here is just talking about naming Christian nationalism as an ideology to to learn more about, and and that was a finding in this poll and one that we've seen in other polls as well that a very large number of Americans, and I'm, I can't remember, Rob, it might maybe about 40% in your poll, or maybe even more than half have never even heard of Christian nationalism. Um, so we run in these circles where this is something uh, that is being increasingly talked about, and, and that is the su subject of mainstream media and interviews and all of that, um, but that this huge portion of the American uh, population has still never heard about it. And I think in the words of James Baldwin, not everything that is faced can be changed, uh, but nothing can be changed if it's not faced. And yeah. first to facing it is naming it and understanding it and learning to recognize it. Um, and so that is part of what we are trying to do at Christians Against Christian Nationalism, a project that uh, we started with a large number of partners back in 2019, um, is to put definitions to Christian nationalism, to give examples of it, and then to provide resources for individuals and groups who are looking to take it on. And, and our resources are produced for and aimed at specifically Christians, because we think Christians have a special responsibility um, of dismantling Christian nationalism. And one of the key in, impediments to dismantling Christian nationalism is this false idea that to go against Christian nationalism is somehow to be against Christianity. Mm. Um, and so we think mm. that Christians have a special responsibility of understanding first in themselves, how they distinguish Christianity and a faithful walk with Jesus from Christian nationalism, coming to grips with it within their own personal theologies and the theologies and worship practices of their faith communities, and then going out into the broader world um, to share that information. And so um, certainly, yeah. To Christians listening, please check out ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org to take a public stand and to use these resources. And then for everyone, our resources, please point to them when you hear those false statements about to go against Christian nationalism is, um, in, in the words of some of the detractors, to be a godless, you know, globalist. Oh. We need to take another break, but up next, more on Christians Against Christian Nationalism and the new PRRI report, A Christian Nation, Understanding the Threat of Christian Nationalism to American Democracy and Culture. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. 
You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, why are some physicians sounding the alarm over the privatization of Medicare? How could a program called ACO Reach? be influencing the way physicians treat patients. To find out, we spoke to Dr. Philip Verhoff, president of Physicians for a National Health Program, a physician-led organization that advocates for single-payer healthcare in America. The idea behind the ACO REACH program is that the government will support enrolling Medicare patients into one of these ACO REACH programs. You know, a Medicare patient would become a part of an ACO as a function of their doctor, and their doctor would be a part of this ACO. And then that would determine the kind of care that patients get, at least at some level. I think the problem here is with the ACO REACH program, the pilot is to take Medicare patients and put them in an ACO. That happens without the patient necessarily knowing. It happens without Congress being able to oversee that. And the reason that's a problem is that these ACOs, even though they're comprised of docs, they can actually be run by pretty much anybody. It could be run by a health insurance company. It could be run by a private equity company. It could be run by some individual who just wants to run their own ACO. And that means that this is a de facto form of privatization of Medicare. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. State of Belief from Interfaith Alliance with Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch. Made for such a time as this. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. With me are Robbie Jones from the Public Religion Research Institute and the Baptist Joint Committee's Amanda Tyler. Um, Is this movement, is Christian nationalism growing? Is it spreading? Is it receding? What is the trajectory that we're looking at? On the question of whether it's growing, we don't know from the numbers is the first survey that we've done with this set of questions. Um, it, it uses different questions in previous surveys, so we can't quantitatively say it uh, one way or the other. Um, but w- what I would say is that it's worth remembering, like, this is a, um, a movement that we're tracking, but it's not new. It's an old movement and this is a new incarnation of a very old idea in American in American history. So I think it's always been this minority view. But here's one thing that I can say when you look at age uh, in the survey, right? Um, there is this big break between Americans over the age of 50 and those under the age of 50. And with those over the age of 50, much more likely to be sympathizers or adherents to Christian nationalism. I think that tells us where this is headed. Amanda, do you have a sense of Growing, spreading, receding? I think we have language, as Robbie says, we now have language to understand what we've seen all along. And so it feels 
like it is growing. Um, I've talked about the last several years as a rising tide of Christian nationalism that is particularly dangerous because of its violence. Um, and again, not the first time. We've had lots of other examples from our history of violent Christian nationalism, deadly Christian nationalism. So it's not the first time that that's happened. Um, but also with the way that it travels along with misinformation at the speed of light in our digital age. That's a new component of it. And what we have seen even within the last year that's different about Christian nationalism is now that it's a term that people are coming to recognize, we have some really extreme people actually rallying around that term, associating themselves as, oh, I wanna be a Christian nationalist. That is a troubling development that needs to be met head on with resistance or we risk normalizing Christian nationalism in a way where we could see an increase over time, you know, if we don't meet that challenge head on. Yeah, and we did see that in the survey that while Amanda's right, that is about four in 10 Americans haven't heard of the term, but among those who have, those who fit the mold, who um, agree with all the tenets of Christian nationalism embrace the term, right? We actually see that, like they overwhelmingly have a favorable view of yeah. the term. So it's not just a term being used by the left right, to uh, kind of talk negatively about the right, um, it, it is a term that's actually being embraced among conservative Christians. One of the things that I'm trying to imagine is like, can we cast a different vision that is compelling, that in, invitational, that says, actually, this is a much better country when everybody has a right that's in the Constitution to believe as they want to believe. And that includes people of all faith traditions and no faith traditions, that religious freedom is a fundamental right, but it doesn't mean that you get to take over everything and impinge your right on it, which is the Christian nationalist ideology. And so I think that there's casting another vision. Uh, that is better, that that also invites Christians. That includes you, by the way, conservative yeah. Christian. We want you to worship like you want to worship. You know, I mean, all of that. And so I know I'm preaching to the choir, but sometimes we all just need to hear a good word, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and to that's... that point, yeah, you know, Paul, I would say that's exactly what we're trying to do at Christians Against Christian Nationalism with our eight principles. Yeah. There's just a restatement of foundational ideas of religious freedom for all, and that we know have attracted Christians from more than six dozen different denominations. So these are ideologically, theologically, geographically diverse Christians who are uniting around these principles despite their other differences. So I, I think that's the vision that we are indeed trying to cast. You know, what strikes me when I look back on history is, you know, I think Christians also will wake up a bit if they realize whose company they're walking in, if they fully embrace this worldview, right? This is the worldview of the KKK. You know, if we kind of go back and we remember this, like the KKK was about a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Christian America. That's who they were defending. That's why Jews and Catholics were, uh, you know, beyond the pale. It's uh, like a thousand percent. Thank you for reminding us. That's like that's the that's what we're fighting against. I, I think that that's so important. And then it's exactly that which like tried to go against the civil rights movement. I mean, all the things that we say that we celebrate in this country are again under attack by white Christian nationalism. I want to say both of you are part of organizations that are so important. The Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Freedom, the Public Religion Research Institute, both of your organizations are crucial 
for the future of American democracy. And so for listeners out there who maybe don't know about these organizations, please know about them. At this point in American history, in American religious history, in American democracy, what gives you hope? So, Amanda, I'm going to ask you that first, and then we'll go to Robbie. Oh, what good. Gives I guess you it's hope time to think. Right yeah, take your time, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's giving me hope, we've been at this for nearly four years at Christians Against Christian Nationalism. At BJC, we're in our 87th year, so, um, so we are not new to defending religious freedom for all. But I will say, the more that people learn about Christian nationalism, the more they want to work to oppose it. I mean, the fact that we have now have name and resources to deal with this ideology, this ideology that's been with us for centuries, I think we are at a moment where we have the tools to really address it. Now, we are also at a moment where it's an urgent threat to democracy, Christianity, and religious freedom for all. Um, so I, I'm not, you know, kind of uh, glazing over you know, what an important and, and difficult moment this is. But when we go out and talk about Christian nationalism at Christians Against Christian Nationalism, people are always asking, you know, oh, do you have a lot of um, detractors? Do you have a lot of opponents? And I said, you know, we have some of those, but we have far more people that are saying, finally, someone's saying what I've been thinking and feeling. And so I think we are galvanizing a larger and larger movement that is equipped to make a difference and to stand against this ideology. Thank you, thank you. I think that that's, that's such a powerful witness um, for like the work that you're doing and, um, and also, you know, a rallying cry. I mean, I, th I think we have to say like, this is not gonna defeat itself. So it will require, you know, people to recognize it and stand up. And this is a generational project. I always add that when I talk about this is that don't lose hope if it doesn't change overnight. Um, but we have to take the first step. We have to be in it for the long haul. Thank you. Okay, Robbie, take us All home right. with some hope. Well, I'll start where I began. You know, I, I think while these voices are loud, while these voices are perched in some powerful places, right? They've taken over one of the two political parties um, in this country. They are not the majority of this country. I think that's the thing, 68%, right? Lean away, away from this worldview, right? So two to one, again, Americans do not accept this as the future of, as who we are or the future of who this country is going to be. So I, I think that's worth remembering. You know, I think one of the things I'm learning as someone who grew up, you know, I grew up, you know, Baptist in the South, evangelical. And um, I think when you grow up thinking of yourself as white and kind of understand and growing up in a kind of white community struggle looks problematic. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm learning, like, and, you know, Frederick Douglass put this, like, very plainly, like, if there is no struggle, there is no progress, right? Um, and and I, I think for white people, I often see struggle as just a problem. And I think for people of color who've learned this lesson over and over, no struggle is how stuff changes. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we're really seeing here is this is a kind of last ditch effort to hold on to an America that is you know, slipping away. And like, I think we should celebrate that America's demise, right? And because it is opening up um, a new possibility for us to live more fully into the principles that this country was founded on in the first place. Right? And then we've always struggled. We've always had these two traditions. One tradition is an anti-democratic, 
theocratic tradition that is about the dominance of white Christians in this country, white Protestants in particular. The other tradition is of a pluralistic democracy. And we, these things have lived side by side for our whole history. And I think if there's some hope, I think we're at a place where, um, you know, it looks like the pluralistic democracy side is pulling away, right? And I think that's why we're having um, this kind of sense of, uh, you know, clawing and scratching and this kind of, I really do think it is in many ways the death rattle of that older worldview uh, passing from the scene. Wow, that is so excellent. And thank you so much for that. I, I, that absolutely rings both of your, both of your answers have given me hope. Amanda, Robbie, thank you so much for joining us here on State of Belief Radio. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. We need to take one last break and then Glitter Ash Wednesday. You're listening to State of Belief Radio brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Biden and the radical Democrats have wasted trillions of dollars and caused the worst inflation in half a century. Real wages are down 21 months in a row. Gas prices have soared and are now going up much higher than even before. And the typical American family is paying $2,200 in increased energy and food costs each year. Okay, uh, Biden gave the real statistics. I can see see where baby was triggered. Oh, and this is the part where he actually literally says, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. Joe Biden's weaponized Justice Department, and I'm a victim of it, is persecuting his political opponents. And on top of all of that, he's the most corrupt president in American (laughs) history. (laughs) All they have are lying liars who lie. I read Don Jr.'s tweet. Ted Cruz said, President Biden should have shot down the Chinese balloon as soon as it entered U.S. airspace. Instead, he waited until it collected all the data it needed and shot it down after the mission was completed. First of all, he knows that's not true. Right. As uh, Jim Shuto was the first to report, U.S. officials say they were able to block the balloon from gathering intel during its overflight of the U.S. while the U.S. military was able to turn the table, so to speak, to gather intel on the balloon itself and its equipment. And uh, Fox News confirmed that report. Thank you. Thank you. Rick Wilson. Both CNN and Fox News confirming that. Rick Wilson, former Republican, So, as I read. So the decision to shoot down the thing was done on Wednesday. We monitor it, jammed its sensors, gained intel on its capabilities, waited till it was out of range where we could, uh, where the crash could cause civilian harm, shot it down, and this is what caused a million MAGAs to yep. lose it. Um, Malcolm Nance has some hilarious thoughts, as you can imagine, on who won that particular spy game. Spoiler alert, us. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. Since 2006, important conversations, inspiring guests, State of Belief Radio from Interfaith Alliance. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. The Reverend Elizabeth Edmond is an activist and a political strategist who spent two decades in the struggle to become an openly queer priest in the Episcopal Church. The Reverend Marion Edmonds Allen is an ordained minister and the executive director of Parity, working at the intersection of faith and LGBT concerns, and is the director of Blessed by Difference. 
Since 2017, they have co-conspired on Glitter Ash Wednesday, with more than 150 congregations taking part, and I'm very interested in hearing more. Reverend Liz, Reverend Marion, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much, Paul. It's a delight to be here with you. Yes, such a joy. Thank you. Let me have the origins of Glitter Ash Wednesday. How did this idea start and what need did it fill? Yeah, so it was my idea. And um, back in 2016, it was Ash Wednesday and I'm an Episcopalian and so very liturgical. And my office is down in lower Manhattan. And so it's Ash Wednesday and I'm walking around and my book, Queer Virtue, was just about to come out. And so I was already thinking about like the parallels between queer experience and Christian experience. So I'm walking around downtown and seeing all these people like walking around with the ashes on their heads. And all of a sudden I saw that in a new way. And what I saw was these people have just come out as Christian. And I found myself thinking, huh, you know, I wonder if it'd be possible to come out not just as Christian, but as a, a particular kind of Christian, like as a Christian who is queer positive, basically. But it was already Ash Wednesday, you know. So I made a little note on my phone uh, with an alarm to go off in January the following year to remind me, think about this a little bit in advance of Ash Wednesday. So January of 2017 comes and the, my phone pings and I'm looking at that. I, oh yeah, oh yeah, that old idea. My girlfriend was there and uh, she was actually packing for the Women's March on Washington that was about to take place in January of 2017. And I said to her, I said, I said, I had this idea, would it be possible for people to come out, sort of be visibly queer and visibly Christian? How would you do that with Ash Wednesday? And she said, put glitter in the ash. And I got to tell you, you know, like Ash Wednesday is really important to me. Like I really take the liturgy of it seriously. And as soon as she said it, I was a little bit taken aback. Like, I don't know about this, but it was an intriguing idea. So we hit the books together and I found this quote from St. Augustine. Now understand January, 2017, I don't mean this in a partisan way, but there were a lot of people right then who were very concerned about the direction the country was headed and who were afraid and uh, afraid that we were going down a, a possibly a, a really negative road, like a really bad road. And so Augustine said that it really matters not to despair, that even when you're facing really hard times, it matters not to fall into despair because despair paralyzes. And I knew instantly that that was the significance of putting glitter in the ash. Mm, I love that. I think it's really important for people to understand that this comes actually out of a place of deep appreciation of the rituals and the lit liturgy and the significance of Ash Wednesday, which for me also, I'm a Baptist, but it's something that I actually take really seriously each year because it's a time of deep reflection about what is important. What do I want to focus my energy on? What, are, you know, the words are like, you know, remember you are ash into ashy return. So it's, it's really about like, what do you want to spend this life doing? How do you want to prepare your spirit? How do you want to present your spirit? How did this become part of parody? How did you team up is actually like the, the next question. 
Well, Liz's book had recently come out and it's called Queer Virtue. And if you haven't read it, it's amazing. So I read Liz's book and I thought, oh my goodness, I need to meet this person. She sounds amazing. So I got in touch with Liz and lo and behold, she said yes to meeting for coffee. And then we became fast friends. So during that time in January, Liz mentioned this to me. We we were trying to figure out, okay, how can we do cool, meaningful things together. And Liz said, well, what do you think about this idea? And I had the same reaction that Liz had. It kind of took me aback for a minute. But then I thought, no, this is amazing. This is something people can do because that was what we were hearing. What can I do in this moment? And so it was it was perfect. And we ran with it. I, th- I think of Ash Wednesday as a very countercultural moment in the kind of uh, original sense in that like, it's not a commercial moment. It's not a celebrity moment. It's really like, this is where I stand moment. And I think the glitter, glitter ash Wednesday is not meant to actually divert that. It's meant to underline it in some ways. This is, this is the way I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I, I, let's go back to the first time you administered glitter ash on someone's forehead and what that felt like. Hmm. Our first Ask Wednesday, we we were down at uh, that little pocket park at the Stonewall National Monument. We decided to like go to where the the that the movement was really took off. So we're in this little pocket park, and we have that. There's a there's a very short liturgy that we've created that people can do if they want to do Ash Wednesday events. So we held this little liturgy, and a number of people gathered for that. And then the Christopher Street subway station is right there. And so we sort of spread out and it became like an ashes to go kind of moment where we were just catching people as they were coming to the to the subway, starting their morning commute, um, with the difference being that uh, we wanted to make sure that nobody participated in this without their consent. So it was really important to have a little, like a really quick little, here's a palm card that explains what this is, but let me just tell you, you know, that this is sort of a protest movement and it's an, you know, an affirmation of, of LGBTQ people. We'd have a quick little chat about it and then say, would you like would you like this? And I think the whole morning, Mary, and I don't know what your experience was exactly, but the whole morning, I think I only had one person who said, nope, nope, that's not for me. But I had a number of people who said, my relationship to the church is so strained right now. There is no way I would have done Ash Wednesday, but I'll do this, you know, mm. right here. Mm. Put it right yeah. here. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, Marion, did you have did you have that experience? I did, Liz. It it was an aha moment that I could I could watch people's faces change. You know, oh oh no, here's this religious person that wants to do something. I'm going to run away. To oh, this is interesting, and this fits with me. This fits with my life. I'm not sure how I feel about faith or religion. I'm not sure about God, but there is hope. There is hope that God does love me. And there is hope in the people I see around me in seeing Liz and I and our clerical callers openly queer saying, God loves you. Then Isn't that amazing. Isn't amazing. that amazing? I mean, it's really actually, it's the most transformative thing possible. And frankly, like, you know, there's a lot of like renting garments and, and oh no, you know, young people don't like the church. Well, guess what? The number one reason that people say they leave the church is because they associate the church with anti-queer rhetoric. 
You know, that's like that, you know, people are because they're like, oh, I have to choose between liking my gay friends or me being gay and my faith. OK, I'm you know, I'm done. I'm done. And what what this is offering is actually that is that is a false dichotomy. We're not going to accept that anymore. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is that this I think it, it could be especially liberative for queer people. But there's also people who really want to show solidarity with the people in their life whom they love, who they want to make sure that, that they they know that their Christian faith welcomes them, embraces them, celebrates them. So my guess is that this is not just LGBTQ people that you're administering glitter ashes to, but it's also allies and neighbors and friends and loved ones. That's absolutely right, Paul. And at this point, it's even gone beyond, you know, gesturing toward affirmation of LGBTQ people. There is something in this liturgy that points to the center of the tradition itself. So that uh, there is something in here that people can grab hold of in terms of understanding anew what it is that is precisely so compelling in Christianity. And to me, it's it's inherently a queer positive message, but it's it's not just a queer positive message. So one thing just to know about, about the glitter and ash, so we use purple glitter and you mix it in with the ash. And the truth is, it's actually, it can be a little hard to see, actually, you know, depending on how much glitter the ashes will actually hold, <laughs> you know. So you put it on your, your forehead. And, and what really happens is you, you see the glitter when the light catches it somehow, mm. you know. Mm. And it reminds me of a, a, an extraordinary Black preacher that I know who, is a, who has been something of a mentor to me. And I heard her preach once this incredible sermon about how Christians are, we are Easter people in a Good Friday world. Hmm. which is a paradoxical concept and a difficult concept. How Good, do you... Just for those listening who don't know, like the Christian faith so much, on Good Friday, Jesus was crucified, died, and then on Easter, he was risen and give new life, uh, which is very significant to, to Christians. Thank, thank you for that. Now, the, Paul, you've named that exactly right. And that's why this is, goes to the center of Christianity, because what Christianity says is we find new life by going through experiences of death. And for like for people who are involved in social justice movements, you find justice by having the courage to take risks, to put yourself on the line, you know. And that's what that means to say we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. It means we don't ignore all the death-dealing realities around us. We enter into them confident that we will come out, we will find new life. And really, in many ways, even a traditional Ash Wednesday service, that's what the proclamation is, is this idea that we we take the reality of death so seriously that we put it on our foreheads and we expect new life. Glitter and ash just takes that like a what just kind of like like turbocharges that by having the purple, this purple glitter, the purple symbolizing the repentance of the season of Lent. And I would say the accountability of the season of Lent. And it sparkles, it shines, you see it. So it's not just gloom and doom and we're so depressed. No, it's we're, we're willing to enter into these death dealing experiences precisely because you can see the sparkle of it. You can see what is hopeful, mm. you know, 
and mm, and yeah. it, it's like I a gird that. your loins yeah. kind of moment. Yeah, 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 I love that, and I love that. You know, I love the subtlety, and then if you look at it, it becomes more. And I think that's like the the great thing about any liturgical tradition uh, is that the more you really go into it, the more you discover, and the more the the more meaningful it becomes. And and the idea of you know the the ashes themselves come from the palms that we wave, you know, welcoming Jesus, and then like mixing those, you know, those that are yeah. have been burnt and then mixing those with glitter and like this idea of like even within the ashes there's there's like like sparkle and and then you know what can the resurrection you know this i'm preaching now because you know we're all from the christian tradition no no one has to adopt this language but you should understand like the, you know, for me, the resurrection means new life for everybody, abundant life for everybody, justice for everybody, freedom for everybody, and and uh, and that includes queer people. Tell me a little bit about parody uh, and and what the goals of parody are and how that fits in with the Glitter Ash Wednesday. Parody's goal is to highlight the wonderful ways that people share faith that is LGBT affirming. And what I particularly love about Glitter Ash Wednesday is that I get orders from congregations and chaplains, people all over the country and outside of the United States that want glitter ashes, but I ask them to tell me what they're going to do. And then I get to hear the story of, oh, our youth group wants to lead an ashes to go service in Princeton, New Jersey. Or I have a congregation that wants to show that they're in solidarity and we're going to have a service and we're going to have a liturgy outside. And the stories go on and on from Texas to Canada, everywhere. And I love it. That's fabulous. Okay. So, so, um, Ash Wednesday, this, this, uh, we're, we're going to be airing, uh, during the week that Ash Wednesday, how can people find out about it? Um, and, uh, and if the, if it's too late this year, we've already been given the example. It's not too soon to put a note in your, uh, calendar. Where can people find out more? People can find out more at parody.nyc. And what they'll find is they'll find instructions for making glitter ashes themselves. They'll also find liturgies and information. And if someone wants to attend a service or ashes to go near them, all they need to do is to get in touch with me because there are literally hundreds all over the country. We can't keep up with it anymore. But also people can order glitter blessings. And these are vials of blessed holy oil from Jerusalem with biodegradable glitter. People use them for pride festival outreach. They use them. Someone's using them in a transfiguration service. They're used in all different ways. And we send them out for free because we believe blessings are meant for all year round and blessings should be free. uh, Can people find you uh, in social media spaces? Yes. I'm hashtag Liz underscore Edman, E-D-M-A-N. There's also a queer virtue website and you can get information, some of the theology of Glitter Ash Wednesday on the queer virtue website as well. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And our main presence is parody.nyc, our website. And we're also on Facebook at parodynyc. Liz and Marion, thank you for being on State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help in keeping this show on the air. 
I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Bleep podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and it is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member of Interfaith Alliance today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.